As we turn our attention to Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 39, this morning, the author of Hebrews is really in the midst of application. And we come this morning to a warning passage. And you may remember last time we were together in Hebrews. We looked at Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, and in, in that passage, the author of Hebrews takes everything that he has said up to this point, starting all the way back in Hebrews 1, with the superiority of Jesus Christ. The superiority of his ministry as our high priest. The superiority of the, the power and the effectiveness of his blood to save from sins. With all of this that has been laid forth, this doctrine, now the author of Hebrews applies that. If all of this is true, how should God's people respond? Well, as we saw last week, we should draw near. We should hold fast. And we should encourage one another in the truth. Draw near, hold fast, encourage one another, let no one fall away. This morning, as we come to this passage, the author of Hebrews kind of continues with the idea of application, and yet today he approaches it more as the, the negative side. What should happen should you not accept this gospel? All of this truth that we have laid out, should you still look at that and you see the cross of Jesus Christ and you see his superiority and yet you still turn and you still run back to the law? What is at stake? And then at the end, they call to then endure. Do not make that mistake. Don't turn from the truth. It's a very heavy passage, and yet it's a needed passage. So as we work our way through this passage this morning, we will see a warning against falling away and a call to endurance. A warning against falling away and a call to endurance. It's important to note here at the beginning to remember that the author of Hebrews is writing to believers. In fact, we'll see that when we get to the end of our passage in verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. He's writing to believers. He's writing as if his audience is believers. And yet, he is not writing foolish enough to think that everybody who will read this is a believer. It's as if he is standing in this pulpit. I am preaching to a church. My base assumption is that you have all believed, and yet I am not foolish enough to believe that everyone in here has believed. And it is those few among these believers that maybe have not believed that he is addressing in these first several verses. Those few who have heard the gospel, who know the truth, and yet have not embraced it themselves. And he uses very harsh language in verses 26 to 31, as we will see here. Very harsh language to grab them from the shoulders, to shake them and to say, wake up! Take this seriously! Do not fall away! 
And so here we see a warning against falling away, starting here in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For if we sin willfully, the idea here is not individual sins. It is not individual times here and there. We all sin willfully. But he is talking here more big picture. If you see all of this and then you know the truth and then you turn willfully away from it, you embrace sin, you reject the cross. He is talking here of apostasy, the rejection of the Christian faith. This is in stark contrast to verses 19 to 25. If you accept this, you will draw near, you will hold fast, you will consider one another. But if you do not, if you sin willfully, if you turn your back on the cross, if you reject the Christian faith, and notice, these are not, these are not those who have just heard the gospel one time. These are those who have received the knowledge of the truth. They have seen the cross and the glory of it. They know the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet, they turn their backs on it. If you have done that, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no other option. If you have turned your back on the cross, if you have rejected the blood of Jesus, then you have rejected all hope of salvation. There is no plan B, for there is salvation under no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. So to turn your back on the cross, to turn your back on Jesus, is to turn your back on salvation. To run back to the law is to run into hell itself. There can be no expectation of forgiveness if there is no sign of repentance. If you have turned from this knowledge of the truth. In fact, verse 27, what is there an expectation of? Rather than an expectation of forgiveness, a certain fearful expectation of judgment. You have no expectation of salvation. You must then have an expectation of judgment. If you reject the gospel, then you must expect the condemnation of God. Expectation of judgment, a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. I mean, think about how serious this is, what the author of Hebrews is saying here. 
If you have rejected the knowledge of the truth, you have set yourself up as an adversary of God. You are an enemy of a holy God. This can be nothing else except for condemnation itself, a clear reference to falling under the condemnation of a holy God, a condemnation to hell itself. You will face the same judgment reserved for God's enemies because you have aligned yourself with God's enemies. These words are heavy. They are shocking and they are meant to be shocking because they are meant to call those among us to repentance. Don't you see that there is no hope in any other name except Jesus Christ? To deny the cross is to deny salvation, to reject salvation. As you come to verse 28, he gives an illustration, and he really argues from the lesser to the greater. His audience was familiar with the law. We know that. They held Moses and the law of Moses in very high regard, and and what the author of Hebrews says here is, anyone who's rejected Moses, Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. To reject the law of Moses, to, to say that that is not true, I don't care about it, I will live how I want. To turn and to walk away from that as an, as an Israelite was a condemnation to death. Two or three witnesses testify against you. And there was no mercy. You have rejected mercy. They know that to be true. And as Israelites, they would call that just. And the author of Hebrews here says, if that is true, how much worse is the punishment for him who turns against the knowledge of the truth? In fact, he doesn't say the knowledge of the truth here. But he really puts it in context of what you are doing. If you have seen the knowledge of the truth, if you have heard it, if you know it, and yet you reject it, this is what you are doing. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? The idea there of of trampled is not just to accidentally step on something. It is to purposefully squish something. It is not just indifference. It is hate. You are no different than the crowd who cried for his crucifixion. You are no different than the soldiers who spit in his face as they mocked him. You are no different than the religious leaders who lied about him to get what they wanted. You 
You've trampled the Son of God underfoot. The very same Son of God, as Hebrews 1 tells us, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and you have trampled Him under your foot. But not only have you done that, but you have counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Something so precious that you've treated so commonly. I enjoy each week the opportunity that I have to mow the lawn. It allows me to get out of my office and to do something outside to be moving. It's a nice change of pace. But I guarantee you that if you were to come up to drive up or drive by the church on a day when I'm out mowing the lawn, you would not see me mowing the lawn dressed like this. I don't dress like this all the time. I guarantee you that. Especially not when I'm mowing the lawn. In fact, you wouldn't even see me just wearing any old shoes. Not less, not these shoes, but, but just eat any tennis shoes. I have several pairs of tennis shoes, and I don't wear any of them to mow. I have one specific pair I wear. It's an old pair. It's a pair that I care nothing about. It's a pair that has, I have no attachment, no care for. If they fell under the mower and got destroyed tomorrow, I could care less. I don't care what happens to them. They have no meaning to me, no attachment to me. No significance to me. They are meaningless. And that is how you are treating the blood of the covenant. The blood that brings salvation. You are treating it as meaningless, as powerless, as of no significance to you. Even though, even though you claim this is the blood that has sanctified me. And yet you treat it as meaningless. Don't get thrown by that language there by which he was sanctified. He's talking here of one who claims to be sanctified by the blood of Jesus, and yet his actions show that this was not the case indeed. His identification with the Christian community, his identification with Christ is superficial. It is all just out front and outward. There is no real change in his heart. You claim that this blood has saved you, and yet you are treating it as meaningless. Not only that, but you insult the spirit of grace. You slap away the hand that offers salvation. The Holy Spirit who is at work all around you, you deny When you put all of these together, you see this. That the one who apostatizes, who turns and rejects the gospel itself, is one who has denied the identity of Jesus Christ. One who has denied the power 
of the blood of Christ in one who has rejected the grace of God. To see and to reject the gospel is to blaspheme God. And there's a promise here of justice. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That comes from Deuteronomy 32, verses 35. Vengeance is mine. Judgment is coming. The last several weeks we've been in uh, the Psalms on Wednesdays. In the last few psalms, Psalm 96, 97, 98, they have been psalms praising God for his coming judgment. Seems like an odd thing to praise God for, does it not? And yet one of the things that we have noted is that your perspective of God's judgment changes based on who you are in Christ. The guilty man fears a judgment. But the one who is innocent rejoices in righteous judgment. Rejoices in justice. The people of God rejoice in the vengeance and the justice of God. Come, Lord, make all things right. But here there is a promise of judgment for the one who rejects the gospel. Several years ago when I was in college, before I went full-time to work at Good News Ministries, I did an internship there. And during my internship, uh, one summer, there was three of us college guys living in a house. And one of the college guys really liked things to be very, very cold at night. So he would turn the air way down. And eventually, this showed up on the bill that the mission was getting. And so the mission guy came, the, the head guy there, Dan Evans, he came and he said, do not touch that thermostat again. You are just wasting our money. Don't touch it. And Dan's the type of guy that when he says something, you do it. But this other kid didn't care. And so he got up the next night, and he turned it down as low as it would go again. I got up in the middle of the night, figuring he would do that, and turned it back up, because I didn't want to be without air conditioning. He had warned, if you do that again, you'll be without air conditioning the rest of the summer. The next night, he did the same thing. He turned it way down. I got up, and I turned it way up. The next night, he turned it way down again, and I forgot. I went to work the next day. As you can imagine, in the middle of the day, Dan Evans comes walking in. You can tell he's not happy. He walks in the office. He looks at us and says, I do not make idle threats. He turned around and walked out, and uh, our air conditioning was turned off. He was serious. He had given us a warning. He was not kidding. This was not to be taken lightly. And here we see the same truth, but of eternally more significance. God promises judgment for sin. He is just, and He is not to be taken lightly. He does not make idle threats. In fact, it goes on to say, 
And again, the Lord will judge His people. That goes on to Deuteronomy 32, 36. The Lord will judge His people. Lest you think that you will escape this judgment because you identify with the people of God. There is no escaping the judgment of God. I think there's an illustration from the Old Testament that helps us to understand what he is saying here. In the Exodus, we know the story as the plagues come upon Egypt. In Exodus 12.23, you come to the final plague as the firstborn will be slain. And that night, as the Lord comes and He moves through, He moves through the tents of Israel just as He moves through the halls and the homes of Egypt. Because you see, it is not where you it is not where you camped that saved you from the judgment of God. It is your faith and your obedience. It is the blood of the Lamb that you placed on the doorposts of your home. You could be camping in the midst of Israel, but if you did not, that judgment still came from you. It didn't matter where you were, in the midst of God's people or in the midst of Pharaoh's courts. Hiding amongst God's people will not save you from God's judgment. You can go to church and be in this building every time the doors are open, but if you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, if you are leaning on the faith of your parents or on your church attendance, then you will face condemnation. You will stand before God and you will be judged for your sins. And here's the stark warning. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is to be taken seriously. A powerful, eternal God. Note that word there, living God. That idea of living is something that the author of Hebrews has returned to several times talking about Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek. One of the big things that that points to is his eternal ministry. He is living. So just as the eternal inheritance of the saints is tied to the internal, eternal intercession of our living high priest, so the eternal judgment of the unrighteous is tied to the eternal living nature of the just judge. He is a living God. And His judgment is eternal. He is all-powerful and it is fearful to fall into His hands. Do not take this lightly. You will either know God as Father or you will know God as Judge. As I mentioned, these first several Verses, verses 26 to 31, they are heavy. This is serious. Do not take this lightly. I 
As you turn to verses 32 to 39, there is then a call to endurance. Having given this warning, having looked at the other side, if you reject this gospel, neglect your soul, this is what is at stake. But now he returns to call believers. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, the idea is after you received the light. Even in that, notice the, the, the contrast with verse 26. Those who received the knowledge of the truth and those who received the light. There's a difference between knowing the truth and accepting the truth. After you received the light, after you were illuminated, after you were saved, you endured. After your eyes were opened to the glory of the cross, you endured. We I mean, just think back to when you were first saved. How precious is that salvation? How excited you were. How real it was. How deep. How precious. Don't you remember that? Speaking to these believers, he says, remember how you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. You were made a spectacle. This was a public shaming, a public persecution. You became companions of those who were treated, who were so treated. Not only did you go through this, but you walked through this with others. You encouraged others. In fact, you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Remember how real it was in that moment. When you let all your worldly possessions go, why? Because you knew that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Because you believed. You endured because you were convinced that this is true. You were convinced. Like Abraham, as we'll see in a few uh, verses, who was looking for a city not built by hands. Remember your suffering and your joy. Remember your hope that you clung to. And don't you see that the truth has not changed? It is just as powerful as it was when you first believed. It is just as sure as it was when you first believed. So do not let your hope waver. Do not let your hope fade. Do not let your faith fall to the side. Just as you were faithful in the past, so be faithful in the present. In fact, that's exactly where he goes next. Therefore, remembering that, now remember that promise. Remember what you were clinging to, what made it so sweet at the beginning. Do not cast away your confidence, your boldness, your surety. There's great reward. 
You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Endure. Remember the past. Remember your salvation. Remember how sweet it was. And remember the promise to which you are clinging. God will be faithful. What is this promise? He, he hints at it here in Hebrews um, 10, 37 to 38. Really looking back very loosely to Habakkuk 2, verses 3 to 4. Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. This is the promise that your Savior is coming. He has not forgotten you. He is coming. So endure. The just shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in all that he is. Faith that he is coming. Be faithful because your God is faithful. Be faithful because he is coming to fulfill all that he has promised you. He has not forgotten. He will not draw back. So you, therefore, do not draw back. Because the one who draws back, the one who falls away, will face the judgment because they never really believed. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews says here at the end. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We are not those who draw back because we are those who have believed, who have taken hold, taken possession of these promises of God. We are those who believed the saving of the soul to the very end itself. So endure. Endure. You may know the name Jamarcus Russell. Jamarcus Russell was a college football player at LSU. He was 6'6", 260 pounds, and he was very good. Jamarcus Russell was one of those players who was a sure thing. As the draft came around and teams were picking, it was guaranteed he was going to go number one because it was guaranteed that he was going to be the best quarterback we've ever seen. It was as sure as anything has ever been sure. And he was selected number one by the Oakland Raiders in the 2007 NFL Draft. And then this sure thing went on to be one of the greatest busts in NFL history. And by bust, what they mean when they're talking about the draft is someone who had so much potential and yet fell so short and accomplished nothing. See, Jamarcus Russell, the problem was that he did not have all the gifts and skills that he needed. He could throw the ball a mile. He was big. He was powerful. The problem was that he was apathetic. The problem was that his whole life he had gotten by on being the biggest and being able to throw the ball the, the farthest and being the fastest. 
But when you got to the NFL, there are others who are just as big and just as fast and just as powerful as you. So when he no longer had that advantage, he did not have the discipline in the little things. In fact, it became pretty clear after he was drafted that he was not disciplined. One of the famous stories is the idea of uh, the Oakland Raiders did not think that he was um, practicing well. He was not watching film like they wanted him to. And so they sent him home with a blank tape. They wanted to test him. And they said, watch this and report on it back to us tomorrow. So he went home. The next day he came back with this blank tape. He handed it to them and he said, that was great. I agree with everything you said. It was clear that he was not watching the tape. He wasn't doing the little things. He had no discipline. And that cost him millions of dollars. He fell out of the limelight. And that's little. There wasn't a lot at stake there. Brothers and sisters, this road to perdition, it is not just a road of open rebellion. It is a road of apathy. It is for those who are not disciplined. Those who come to church and they hear the gospel, but it has no real effect on your life. It doesn't change you. It doesn't mean anything. You come back to church and, yeah, I read my Bible, but you don't really. You're not disciplined. It doesn't really affect you. Maybe because you've never really believed. See, this passage is an attack on cultural Christianity. I remember one time as a young man, I may have told this story before, my friend and I, had gone skiing. Our parents had let us out of school for the day to go up to a little mountain in North Carolina and go skiing. And, and one of the things we thought, as we were in third or fourth grade, I can't remember, we were young, we thought it would be a great idea. There, there were three of us, one girl and us two guys, and, and we thought it would be a great idea if we took turns riding the ski lift and the other person who was by themselves tried to share the gospel. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's do that. And so I remember my first time, my, my friend rode up um, with the, the girl, and I was by myself with this guy. And the whole time, I was scared to death. And as we started getting near to the top, I'm finally like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I turned to him and I say, are you a Christian? And he says, isn't everyone in America a Christian? And in my little third or fourth year grade mind, I didn't know what to say. So I just didn't say anything else. But that's the mindset of so many We're Americans. We're Christian nation. Yeah, we're Christian. I identify as a Christian. That is cultural Christianity, and that does not save. If you are hoping in your American identity, thinking that makes you a Christian, you will go to hell. If you are hoping in the fact that you grow up in a Christian home, that you came to church, if that's what you're hoping in, you will go to hell. 
You will be condemned justly by a righteous God for your sin because you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. How do you know that you are a Christian? Not because you're American. Not because you grew up in a Christian home. Not because you were baptized. Not because you come to church. It's because Jesus died for my sins and I have placed my faith in him. He is the one that I'm trusting in. It is personal. And that's what the author of Hebrews is is driving at here. God's judgment will not pass you up just because you went to a church. The only hope of salvation is in Christ alone. So the first point of application this morning is to take this seriously and to believe. Maybe you've come to church every single day of your life, every time the doors are open, and you're sitting here this morning, and your eyes have been open to the reality of, you know what? I myself have never believed. I remember when that realization hit me as a young man. I was saved at the age of five. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew the gospel. I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I knew that I was a sinner. And yet at five years old, we were going over Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And for some reason in that moment, it struck me. You know what? The Lord is a shepherd, but he's not my shepherd. That is personal. The Lord is my shepherd. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is personal. It is not just the fact that Jesus is a Savior. The question is, is he your Savior? Have you placed your faith in him? You cannot endure if you have never believed. You will not endure if you have never believed. Secondly, this passage is a call to be faithful. To be disciplined. To take seriously your call, even as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because this is not to be taken lightly. Ask yourself and be honest with yourself. Am I really a believer? What does my life say? Not my public life that everyone else says, but if I am honest, what does my life say? I know my heart. I know my struggles. I know if I really live this out or not. Brothers and sisters, be faithful. Take seriously the call to be disciplined. Read your Bible. Be faithful in church. Spend time in prayer. All of these things that we are called to do as believers because you really believe the gospel. Because you have been changed by the power of God and His Spirit indwells you. There is therefore now no condemnation. Not for those who go to church. Not for those who are really good those whose good works outweigh their bad works. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. So that's the question this morning. Are you in Christ Jesus? And if not, I would encourage you, even as we close, come forward. Seek me out after the service. I would love nothing more than to take a Bible, to answer your questions, and to point you to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you you are a believer. You're in Christ. You, you know that. You stand solidly. And yet maybe you have strayed a little bit. Maybe you are not disciplined. You've not been faithful. Let this passage be a wake-up call to take seriously your identity in Christ. Take seriously the call to be disciplined, to read your Bible to memorize scripture, to pray, to be faithful in church. Brothers and sisters, this is not something to take lightly. It is eternity that is at stake. It is the glory of God that is at stake. So be faithful. By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, be faithful.